Welcome to the Get Deep Podcast, where premium spirits meet quality conversation. Featuring your extremely good-looking co-hosts, Aaron Jones and Wes Otto. Now, take off those floaties, get your ass out of the shallow end, and let's get deep. Oh, hey. Uh, we got a really, really great guest across the table from us tonight. I'm super excited about Um we are on the podcast with Ron Vetter tonight, and we're super excited about, I'm super excited about, I've known Ron for, man, many years. Um, he's been a client. Uh, I'd consider him a friend. Um, he shopped Jay Long's for a long time, so I've met, I've met him, um, or I should say worked with him many times there at the store, and uh, he's got great fashion sense. He trusts us, which is, I don't know why, but he does. Um, he brings his kids in there and so we've gotten a chance to know his family and it's kind of a multi-generational business that we operate. So it's a blessing to have families like the vetters who have supported us and gotten to know them over the years. So Ron, welcome to the Get Deep podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yes. We're happy you are here. Well, again, thank you for joining us. We appreciate that. Um, I think, you know, obviously people have heard of your family name and in the community, you guys have been a part of the community for a really, really long time. I think one of the things that people appreciate on the Get Deep podcast, our listeners, that is, is learning the stories of how people that have done really cool things and, and have uh, accomplished a lot and run businesses or different things, where they come from, like what what their childhood story or kind of um, the background story is. So could maybe we start with that tonight if you're cool with that. Sure. Anything. Yeah. So uh, what's, uh, what's your beginnings, Ron? Where did you grow up um, and uh, your, your childhood? What was, uh, what was that like? So grew up in North Mankato, and it was a blast, kind of the Brady Bunch. I was kid number six of six, um, three boys, three girls, and all born within eight years of each other. So lots of activity. My parents were just incredibly busy and just had a really fun childhood. My parents were just awesome to be around, really liked being around my friends, and just had a really neat like experience growing up. I was pretty shy, very introverted. Um, you know, didn't necessarily like my high school years, and I don't think a lot of people do, was just very shy, extremely awkward, um, you know, totally didn't fit in, but I fit in at home, so it didn't really matter. Where did you go to high school? Uh, Mankato West. Okay. Went through the Catholic school th- system through the eighth grade, and then as far as I know, I was the only person in my class that went to West, and I don't even really know how I decided. It was just a piece of paper sitting on our desk, and you had to put a check in, in the box of what school you're going to next year, and it's like... I, I don't know, I guess I'm going, I'll go to West. And I got there the first day and, you know, what do we have classes over at Loyola at, at, you know, maybe 40, 50 people at that time. And I got there and there's, I'm like, I'm in a class of 350. And I ended up <laughs> the whole what? school. Yeah. It's like, what did I do? Why did I make this choice? This was just stupid. Why don't we like talk this through? And I'm like, you'd made your decision. You're sticking with it. It's like, and I could have easily, you know, gone home and said, okay, going to switch schools. And my parents would have been, yeah, fine, whatever. Um, but it's like, you decided you're doing this. You're there for four years. Just suck it up. Let's go. Where did your siblings go? Uh, some went to Loyola, some to Good Counsel, and some to West. Okay. So a hodgepodge. Very hodgepodge. I have no idea why. So what, uh, I know you might hate this question, but what year did you graduate Mankato West? 1982. 82. All right. It seems like it was yesterday but yeah it clearly wasn't did you have fond memories of west then since you went there and you checked the box it was kind of a culture shock but i mean did you enjoy your experience there it was okay 
I was just, you know, like I said, super awkward, just never felt like I fit in. Right. And I think my senior year, I worked full time. Um, so I, I w- would always leave at noon. So I kind of found an excuse to get out of there a little bit early. Sure. Yeah. Did you sports or um, any of the arts or? No, did some plays. Okay. Um, never sports, but did some plays and that was it. And nice. just tried to get out of my box a little bit, at least being in front of people. Were you good? Like, oh, did you enjoy not. it? Oh, yeah, we had a blast. It was, it was just, you know, the kids that were in it really had fun. And you're there, you're just so immersed for yeah. so many weeks. And it's just really fun. It's just a nice environment. Do you remember the plays that you did or a play? Oh, I have no idea. And some were like, <laughs> were written by local people. So okay. they weren't like national plays. That's kind of um, cool. Yeah, it was kind of, it was fun. Yeah. Good experience. Great experience for being in front of people and trying to get your confidence built up. Yeah, I was going to say being an introverted person, as you said you were, I mean, that I... I can't imagine putting myself up on a stage if I was kind of more introverted. You know, it'd be scary, but wow. Well, I had a lot of energy. I got bored. I had to do something. Sure. Yeah. You said you worked too. And was that at the family business or did you work elsewhere? Well, I did at the time, but the family business at that time that had an opening was a funeral home. Ah. So Woodland Hills Funeral Home, which my dad had bought when I was in high school. I did not know that. I did not know that either. So funeral business, what were you doing in the funeral business? Well, so I started out as a janitor. Okay. And then there was a Saturday I was working, and I think it was a junior or senior in high school, and it was the first time I had really worked there, and I'm just, you know, vacuuming and cleaning. And my dad had let one of the funeral directors go. There were two, and he tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, you got to get home and get your suit on. You have to help the other funeral director work this funeral. And I'm like, Dad, I can't work at a at a funeral, I have no idea what I'm doing. And, you know, he just looked at me with a staunch German look. He's like, <laughs> go home and put on your suit. So I'm like, so I did. And I had to drive the hearse. And this hearse was like this big old Oldsmobile hearse. And it was kind of this maroon color. The front seat was like a big bench seat where I could barely, literally hardly see over the front. And I just remember thinking, okay, I can't be the one who's leading the procession because I know where like no churches are in this town. So luckily I got to follow the limousine. And I just, and it was a huge funeral. And so from that day on, I worked every visitation and most every funeral. Wow. So got promoted from being the cleaner to working. As a high schooler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that is an intimidating one, especially again for an or introverted individual. Yeah. Yeah, and I got over that pretty well. I, I'm not so sure I was as introverted as I thought I was, um, but I kind of got over that and then some. Nice. How, how was that working in the, in the funeral business, you know, as far as being around death you know was that something that was weird to you did you just get desensitized to it did you see some dead bodies along the way you know what I mean like you're around it so or did they kind of you did certain tasks that you didn't really have any of the back no I would I would certainly help going to homes if I had to with a funeral director and and assist in moving and you know going and and doing pickups at places and didn't really get desensitized to it um was always kind of uncomfortable with it, but just did it. And if you're, you know, when you're working with the families, you just have to be very calm, very calming. And you just, you just kind of breathe and you're just very respectful at that point. And you just kind of go in and do what you need to do very quietly, quite very respectfully. Mm-hmm. And I think I learned a ton. And, you, and if nothing else, you learn composure. Right. Because on the inside, you know, you're just, you're scurrying and your brain's going and you're, you know, scared or whatever. And it's like, I don't know what I'm doing but you have to act like you know what you're doing. Right. And you just have to be very calm. So it taught me a ton. Absolutely. And obviously you're, you're, you're going through that in people's, some of people's weakest moments in their life. And, and you know, that's... And they're scared and they're counting on you 
to just be take over. steady. Yeah. But at that age, I'm just kind of, you know, just kind of following the lead of the funeral director at that point and just looking and, and there were times when I'd work visitations on my own and you just had to look confident and you just had to, you had to make decisions and just jump in and do whatever you had to do at the time, whatever that was. And you had to look like you knew what you were doing. So two questions, one, and this is my ignorance, uh, mortuary versus funeral home. Did you guys do embalming at where you were working? And what is the difference between a mortuary and a funeral home? Same thing. Okay. Same thing. Really just a, what you call it. So did you guys do embalming? Mm-hmm. I didn't. And sure. I, I was never in the room for that. Um, sure. But might have to help place somebody in the room for that. Sure. That would be particularly strange to do. I yes. just, I, I think that one gives me a little bit of a shiver up the spine. So what years, how many years did you work there? The funeral home? I probably worked there for almost three, maybe four. Okay. And this was all in when you were in high school or right around the time getting out of high school? My entire senior year and then for a couple of years in college until okay. I started working out at the airport. Okay. So like 82 to 84 ish. Yeah. Right in the there. neighborhood. Okay. And, and your, your dad owned the funeral home at that time, Woodland Hills? He was on a bank board okay. and the, the company went into receivership. And he thought, okay, all these people are going to lose their pre-need funerals that they had paid for. He's like, I just don't want that to happen. So he bought it from the bank when he was a director of the bank. Okay. And just kind of tried to bring it back and finish the building. The building wasn't even complete. And I think at the time there were, there were well over 100 people that had paid like in full for their funeral. And, you know, people that can't afford it. It's the, you know, they're paying over time. And, right. And so he gave them, you know, they had lost everything because somebody had come in before and taken the trust funds and used those to try to build the building. And so there was literally nothing there. Um, so he went in and announced one day that he was giving 100% credit. So if somebody had paid in 6000 for a funeral, they passed away, they have a $6,000 credit. So I mean, paid for literally well over hundreds of people's funeral. Wow. wow. And never said anything, just did it really quietly. And But I mean, it was super significant for the people that were affected. What a cool story. Mm-hmm. When did ownership change? I know today Tom Samuelson, right, owns the funeral home. The yeah, and somebody Hills. bought it from my father and then Tom bought it from him. Okay. And I gotcha. had no interest in working there. I just, I knew we were sitting around the dinner table and there were probably three or four kids home at the time. And, you know, and dad came home and he said, well, I bought something today. And it's like, well, what a car, a boat. <laughs> you know, and usually as a kid, you kind of hear what's going on. And there's always, you you normally know what's going on before they say, because you just, you have elephant ears as kids and you kind of hear this stuff. And there was like nothing. And I'm like, a what, a funeral home? It's like, why? So yeah. he kind of explained why he did it and still made no sense to me at all. And then we're eating and he's talking and he said, well, you know, somebody from the family has to work there. And I'm just kind of minding my own business and it, looking around, it's like, wait a minute, I'm the only one at the table without a job. This doesn't bode well for me. And I look up <laughs> and I look down to his end of the table and he's smiling and he's looking right in my eyes. And I'm like, oh my God, you gotta be kidding me. And it's like, and I knew better, you know, coming from a pretty strong German background. It's like, what am I going to be doing? He said, you're the janitor. I'm like, okay, I can handle that. I can do that. Very so cool. that was my start. Wow. And had, as I got into it, it's like, certainly not doing this the rest of my life. Just not what I wanted to do. <laughs> but, it, but it sounds like you, you gained some valuable, just like a lot of people do, valuable experience, knowledge, wisdom from that job. What would you say the number one thing that you learned from that experience at the funeral home was? Probably confidence and just composure. You, know, you just have to be able to just kind of keep things calm. And I right. think I really learned how to help, how to keep things calm really young. Yeah. And how to just kind of diffuse situations that could get really difficult. Yeah. 
I think the toughest part for me would be when people uh, walk in, you know, for a service and there's that whole, they're grieving and there's a lot of emotion and I'm not saying I'm not empathetic, but I just think that would be really difficult to be in a room full of people who are grieving a loss and, you know, standing there and trying to be, you know, you can't be overly, Hey, how you doing? Excited. And you, you, you also need to, like you said, be steady and, and be supportive. And it's I think very, that would be really tough. It but, is. And you, you have to have a certain, you've got to have a lot of empathy with it, but you also, they're counting on you being in charge, right? No matter if you're young or if you've had more experience, they need somebody who's kind of controlling them in the process right. and telling them what to do and where to go. And so you, you have to do that really effectively. Yeah, and that's, that's what is, they need. Right. Yeah. That's not their job at that point. Right. Crazy. So I learned a lot at a really young age. And I think it was just incredibly impactful as I got older. So you uh, figured out you didn't want to be in the funeral business. You were graduating from Mankato West. You ended up at MSU. And I think you said you studied aviation, but go into that end of the story. Why did you decide on the degrees you did? Um, so really planned on being an airline pilot. Had no intention of working at a funeral home the rest of my life. Had no intention of working at the Stone Company. My dad and my brother and my uncles worked there. So no need to go out there. I just, I wanted to fly. And so went through the aviation program at MSU right after it started. It was maybe maybe in the second or third year. Um, so really new, really small. Had a great experience with it. Um, had great instructors, just incredible experiences. Um, loved it. And then I, I got a job out at the airport running their little essential air service. So Bemidji Airlines came in for a while, Masaba for a while. So I worked for whoever got the contract and great experience with that. That was incredible. So you say the little airline, the Mankato one or, mm. okay. Yeah. So Mankato airport had the essential air service coming in for, well, all through my college experience. So Masaba Airlines had, which was a Northwest affiliate, um, had, I think 19 passenger planes coming in three times a day. And then Bemidji got the contract after that. So then I went to work for Bemidji Airlines, who had smaller airplanes, but still had three flights a day. And so I'd get out to work. I'd get at the airport at five, do the runway checks, make sure everything was good, do the weather observations, load the plane at the, for the seven o'clock flight, do the weight and balance, send it off, make sure it was halfway to Minneapolis before you could leave. Then I'd go to MSU, go to my classes, come back to a noon flight, and then come back and do a, I don't know, must have been a six or a seven o'clock flight. Wow. That's that's kind of impressive to handle all of that and go and do classes and then come back and you don't think of it running that way nowadays, right? I mean, I'm sure there's there's people that are staffing it regularly as opposed to leaving to go do something else. But that is a, a yeah. Cool, the way it worked, story. there was a little downtime because when the flights would leave, there really was nothing to do at that point unless you had to clean your office, which was mm -hmm. you know five foot by five foot, so really nothing to do. So you could always do a little homework. So there were, you had a certain amount of downtime that you could you could actually study. So you said you wanted to be a pilot, but it sounds like you were more so in the aviation management side and, and just managing the airport itself. Did you end up doing much flying? I did. So I've got a license and I don't know, have maybe 200 hours or so and really enjoyed it. Um, but when I was doing the ground operations for Bemidji, I took over their um, station. So I was in charge of all the stations. So I would fly around and hire station managers and fire them if needed and make sure that they were fully staffed, including the one they're poured up in um, Minneapolis. And then also did the marketing for them. They had no marketing department, so I, I just did the best I could with it and really enjoyed doing the marketing, really enjoyed running the stations. And then when I graduated, I got a job with um, Northwest Airlines running their ground operations or the passenger service operations in Chicago for a short time and then back in Minneapolis for a while and did that for, I don't know, three and a half, four mm -hmm. years. 
Okay. Wow. Learning a lot here, aren't we? Yeah. Well, like you, this. you know what I'm thinking about as he's telling us about all of this flight experience and airlines. I'm, I'm just flashing to another successful entrepreneur in Mankato that also came from the airline business. And I'm wondering, is there something in the water when it comes to the airline program? Or is there something about flying a plane that's just so similar to getting a business off the ground? Because Kyle Smith also has a, a really great successful entrepreneurial story. And he comes from that same background, too. And he was a much better pilot than I was. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. Yes. Ask Kyle for a flight. Yeah. Don't ask Ron for a, a hundred, flight. Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> no doubt. Um, how do you market? You know, when you said you were in the marketing, and, and at that point, obviously, the, the airline um, or the airport was smaller, much smaller than it is now and, and whatnot. But how do you market that? You said you were in the marketing department for that. Um, what was that like? So it would, at the time for me, I didn't really know what else to do, but it's like, nobody knew we were here. Mm -hmm. So it's just, we were doing radio ads. So I was doing a ton of radio ads and then just newspaper print ads, wherever we could get them and had a very, very small budget. Um, but at least got some recognition for it. It's right. just really hard when you can drive to the Minneapolis airport in an mm -hmm. hour and a half and, you know, door to door from here, you know, you've got to be out and, you know, at least 45 minutes before your flight and, and if there's weather, guess which plane is going to be sitting in the ground and not getting into Minneapolis. So right, got to be a little problematic that way because we're just a little bit too close. Yeah. Do you remember any of those radio ads and what you said in them? Did you record them? Was it your voice on them too? It was my voice on them some of the time. And I remember doing an ad where we did like a computer voice and it was really, <laughs> really obnoxious. And we had, we had come up with Bemidji Airlines, your Minneapolis connection. And it was just this horribly obnoxious thing and I used to get calls from people complaining that it's like oh my god we can't listen to this this is just so bad but they listen to it I'm like okay we're leaving that on because it's it's working and yes it's I I'm even annoyed by it yeah yeah wow funny that's how I always felt about the Kia of Mankato commercials. On the <laughs> I was like, gosh, but you I remembered know. them. Well, I know that they left it on there for that reason. I also, though, refuse to buy a Kia to this day because of those commercials. So. That's funny. Yeah, they really hammered those out there. But everybody, if you mention that, you know, they know they know they've heard them They're yep. They've been annoyed by them, you know, yep. so they, they work, right? It gets the recognition. And I did does. have people call. We will never fly on this because these are just so obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> they called. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. So after the airline experience, um, what happened then? Um, so really like that. Northwest Airlines was a really challenging place to work. I mean, very hard driven. And I was in Minneapolis in charge of the agents and the supervisors in Minneapolis. So the president was John Horn at the time. And he brought in eight of us to come in because they had so much inbreeding. And so normally you'd have to be a, a passenger service, you know, like a ticket agent, then a supervisor, and then you could maybe get these roles. And, you know, average person, you'd be at least 40 or 50 before you would get the role. So he brought a group of us in. I think I was 24. And he's he met with us, and he's like, people are going to hate you when you show up. They're absolutely going to hate you because this is these are really coveted jobs. But we have to stop some of this. We have to get some fresh blood in here, stop some of this inbreeding in here. Um, but you will not be well-received, and we were not well-received. Mm. Very challenging, but again, something that you just kind of work through. And I would say, you know, in Chicago, that was just my training ground. That was for six months, so, you know, it wasn't really a big deal. Um, but when I got back to Minneapolis, it was a much bigger deal. And you're kind of in a fishbowl because the owners, that we just had new owners at that time, Al Checky and somebody else bought the airline. And so they were coming in and out a lot. And you're just really, and those positions are, you're just full on, and you're making big decisions with hardly any data. Um, and you're making a ton of them through the day. It's, you know, if, it's, if an agent can't make a decision, they go to a supervisor. You know, if it's kind of out of their pay grade, 
they would come to us and you have to make decisions like right now. <clears throat> what kind of decisions are you talking about? Oh, you know, if you have a, we dealt with a lot of emergencies coming in. So if there is a, you know, something coming in where, you know, there is an issue with the aircraft coming in, or let's say you had a, you know, so you dealt with those kind of things, just making sure that all the safety protocols were put in place that, you know, you had the fire trucks out, you had right. ambulances there, things like that. And then you would, you know, something happened, you'd kind of be boots on the ground helping. Luckily, nothing ever happened when I was there. Um, but things where, you know, you, you have a flight delayed for hours and hours and people get really upset. Mm-hmm. And I've been, you know, I've had a group of, you know, 120 people surrounding me chanting that they want free tickets and, <laughs> you know, things that are not nice. And luckily they had a good police department up there when they saw things like that, they'd come and stand right, right. right by us and just made sure that I had a nice relationship with them. Cause some of those things got really dicey and, um, interesting, but again, you learn a lot at that point. And especially when you're kind of young doing it, it's a, it's great learning ground. Absolutely. A lot of good learning experiences. What did you do? Uh, like, did you have a method that you leaned on when it came to being thrust into a leadership position and not being well received as you put it, because, you know, you jumped into this coveted role, you were a young dude. How did you handle that? Like, what, what, what did you use as your method? Were you super transparent over communicating or how did, how'd you do it? Yeah, I think probably just more authentic. And just, you know, at that point, you just, whoever is upset or if those groups are upset, you just have to find the people that are. And it's pretty easy to, to pinpoint them. And you just get someone on one time with them. And you don't even necessarily, you know, you don't say, hey, there's an issue here, obviously, let's talk about it. You just kind of get to know each other a little bit. And, and I think I would just tend to do that and build trust more that way. And not even necessarily address the problem. It was just more the, the development where they kind of realize it's like, okay, you just, you know, you kind of got thrust into this and you didn't really take anything away from me. Um, I guess it's okay. Yeah. And maybe you're doing an okay job. Work beyond it and do it authentically. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So no great master plan, just kind of just organically just kind of made it happen just through conversations and working with them over and over and then getting into situations, you know, you get into harried situations where you've really got passengers, you know, really clamoring at you and yelling and chanting and you kind of do that as a team and pretty soon you're you're you end up as a team if you handle it right in their eyes sure that makes sense so airline business and all of a sudden we take a turn i assume right into vetterstone right yeah at a little stop i ran a small manufacturing company that just simply didn't have funding and i didn't realize it did not have funding so that was a very short little stint and then i ended up back at the family business in a sales role and what, approximately what year was that, Ron? That would have been in 1990 okay. that I came back to the family business. Did you, like a lot of people um, who have family businesses, did you fight that um, for a while? Did you fight kind of almost maybe subconsciously or maybe now looking back on it uh, purposely uh, going to the family business, like you said, your your dad and your uncles and, and whatnot were doing it. And you kind of said, you know what, I don't want to follow the same path. I want to, of course, like you said, spread my wings, learn to fly kind of thing. That didn't necessarily work out, but um, or did, but you decided to keep moving along. Uh, did you fight that for a while? Well, I just simply wasn't going there. It just was not the It place. was not going to happen. It was not going to happen. Okay. So what made you? I think over time, somehow, as I got a little older, my dad got a lot smarter. <laughs> so he just knew how to figure. rope you in, huh? He did. He did. And, you know, it started to look pretty enticing. They were starting to grow a little bit. And it's like, okay, this might be a pretty fun, pretty intriguing business. You know, when you grow up with it and it's kind of like, well, this is probably kind of boring. You know, what am I really going to do? It's rocks, right? It's rocks. I mean, what is there to know? <laughs> and then when you get into it, it's like, okay, 
this is really complex. There's a lot to know. There's a lot at stake with these buildings. And um, so I got a pretty good lesson early on. What was the state of affairs in 1990 when you jumped in? Um, Pretty small. My uncle was the only sales rep at the time. And they could really see over time. And, you know, he wasn't a spring chicken, but he certainly wasn't near retirement at that point. But, you know, they had to start thinking, okay, we have to get somebody else in a sales role. We can't just have rely on one person to do sales. So came in and, and just started working with architects and trying to figure out how to sell this stuff. Very cool. And that was your, you said your brother was doing that, the only sales rep? or your, He was doing I'm that sorry, to a uncle? certain degree, but my uncle was really the And what was your uncle's name? Willard. Willard. Okay. Willard, still living, still in town. Is he? Okay, fantastic. Yep, the last of the brothers. In wow. Mid-90s. Oh. Wow. Hanging in there well. Um, so I'd love to, love to let people know the history of Vetterstone. Um, if you wouldn't mind kind of telling us the history of that, and we'll get more into your, you know, your role in the beginning again and to where you are today and, and how the company is. But can you give us a little snapshot of uh, the history of Vetter? and how it began. Yeah, so the beginning is, I think, really a neat story, and I think it's just amazing and just, you know, really kind of puts the onus of responsibility to, to make sure my generation doesn't mess it up. So my grandfather had run a small monument shop in Casota all his life and had taken over his dad's job. And during the Depression, he bought a really tiny little part of our quarry, which we still own. And, you know, back in the 1920s, most of them went defunct because concrete was developed and that's what they were using. Concrete was a lot cheaper because most of the stone was really just quarried to, to be railroad bridges and bridge abutments and wasn't really used on homes or buildings. It wasn't really a decorative material at that point. So when concrete came out, they all basically shut down but and kind of resurrected again more as a, a building material and, a you know, more of an aesthetic. And so my grandfather really had hoped all his life that his four sons would want to get in the business at some point with him. So bought that little property. And when he was 65 years old, had retired from his job running the Cutstone operation and went to his wife who would, his wife um, was my, his second wife, his original wife died when my dad was 10. Um, and then he remarried his sister's best friend. She was a librarian at Penn state with six master's degrees. My grandfather had an eighth grade education, six master's degrees. Wow. Amazing. So well-educated. My grandfather was well-educated, but, you know, just reading books and learning things and, you know, but formal education only through the eighth grade. So nothing compared to, you know, so I think it's just amazing that she left Penn State with her six masters to come to Casota, Minnesota to help raise two boys that were still home. And, you know, and, and she was probably, I don't know, in her 50s, maybe close to 60 at the time. Um, but when, when my grandfather went to her and said, you know, I really want to start this business and it's literally going to take our life savings. And all she said is, Paul, if that's your dream, that's exactly what we'll do, which I think is just incredible. I, mm-hmm. I don't know of many people that would go home and at 65 years old and say they're putting everything on the line and have their spouse say, yeah, if that's your dream, that's what we'll do. And so they started with very little. And there were, I think, four or five producers around at the time, some pretty big companies. Uh, there were a lot of separate companies out in the where the land that we now have and they all came to him and said paul you know you've worked for us over the years we respect you you can't compete against us we're too big you're going to lose everything you've ever worked for don't do this and he just said i think i can do it and he was just very customer service oriented and just his his big thing was whoever you're working with at the moment is your most important customer and it doesn't matter if it's a hearth or a mantle or a skyscraper they get the same level of detail or and attention so that's what we really teach our reps to do is that's the level of, of what we expect you to do. And so we've really carried that through and little by little, 
um, we've just bought out all but one of the other competitors over the years. Very cool. So started with how many acres and where are you at today? Oh, they probably started with, oh, maybe 25 acres. Um, now we're about 750 wow. and then 800 and some down at our Alabama facility. Well, Aaron and I were touring the facility last week, so it was really uh, a neat experience to be able to go through and see not only a lot of the major improvements that you've made in technology that you brought into the space, but also the history, because there's still this little tiny house on a mound of, you know, a hill out there that I'm, I'm sure is the original uh, cabin. I, I don't know what you refer to it as, but uh, where you guys started, right? Yep, we call it the cabin, and my grandfather built that as just a little hunting cabin when, his, you know, when he was younger, and he'd go out there and just you know, do a little hunting and fishing and just hang out with the idea that that would be their first office. So that was their first office for three or four years when they began. Three That's or fantastic. four years. Mm-hmm. And how many people were in that office? Three. Wow. And I think it's maybe inside eight foot by eight foot, and it's just got a little fireplace. Yeah, I was so going to say it's small. Very primitive. It's very small. Very yeah. tiny. Wow. I like That's, that it's made out of the same stone, though. That's cool. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah. We really enjoyed that tour. You know, thank you to Nick Kaus for, to, uh, to him for showing us around the facilities. It was, it was really great and, uh, and whatnot. And so expansive, you know, and you see all the stone again, uh, really need to see the difference of the Alabama, uh, stone and the Casota and the different colors that, you know, kind of go, especially with the Minnesota stone, there's multiple colors too, but there's such a stark contrast to that Alabama, which is super popular today. It seems to be that's kind of the. It is that light gray color. It is. It's certainly a trend. And just in looking at trends in the industry, when they talk about trends in our industry, they're talking that that gray, that light material will be like trendy at least the next 20 years. Really? So it's just kind of emerging now. And and we're just seeing a lot of work with it at, you know, on every kind of structure, residential, commercial, um, institutional. So in 1990, was it just the Minnesota operation? Yes. And how big was the the operation at that point? It was pretty small. I think, trying to think number of employees that we had, but certainly 40 would have been pushing it okay. and probably more in the 30s. And you came in in a sales role. Mm-hmm. And what did the path look like from there? So from there, I just, um, you know, my father and my uncle were the two owners at the time and they were, well, they were equal partners at the time. And, um, they travel quite a bit. They were gone. And when some, you know, people would have questions and it's like, Hey, what do we do about that? What do we do about this? And so I would start making decisions. And I remember getting nipped many times where one of them would come back. It's like, you signed what document (laughs) you did that. It's like, you made that decision. You don't have the authority to make that decision. It's like, look, you guys are gone. Nobody could get a hold of you. People are hungry for an answer. I made a choice. And if you don't want me to do it again, I won't do it again. No, we're not saying that. Um, just saying you weren't authorized to do it. It's like, okay, <laughs> I know. I know. You're um, trying to be a problem solver, which is what typically management and owners want. And that's kind of where I came from. You know, when I worked for Northwest, I was solving problems, you know, every minute of every, it's you know, fast 16 hour day you were working. It was, you're just, you're making decisions all the time. So very used to it, very comfortable with it. And so just kind of got my nose in places where it didn't belong and just kind of took care of things that needed to be taken care of. Not always popular. No, but that probably, you know, Howard, your father seeing that and your uncle seeing that Mm -hmm. probably was a big catalyst to propel you or, uh, you know, forward into propel you, excuse me, forward into position positions down the road, I would assume. I mean, seeing seeing that growth. Yeah. And I think my dad had a better um, 
like of that than my uncle did. Do you think it surprised him a little bit or do you think he knew that he, you had it in you? Um, you were kind of this, you said, introverted kid. I was, but I was also pretty strong um, when I was younger. And you're the youngest of six. And I just remember watching some of the my siblings and it's like, why do you guys do this? This is, it's like our parents are so easy to work with and you're making such stupid choices. And I just remember being really little, like, like six and seven and thinking of that. And it's like, this isn't rocket science, you guys. It's like, and I just, I don't know. So I, I just got to be in a different position in the family sure. and just kind of, I think, even fairly young, had more of a leadership position in the family. Somebody had to go to my parents and, you know, interesting though, lobby the, for something. Being the youngest, though, it's interesting that that was the position that you took or that you were kind of pushed into, I guess. Yeah, I think it definitely was Usually unique. it's kind of inversed. You know, definitely. Yeah. Probably helped that there was eight years between the top and the bottom, right? Yeah, yeah. probably. So that's good. Um, how many of the siblings were involved in the business? So at one time, all of us. So we had all six of us there and my father, um, and we all owned it together and a lot of family. That is a lot of family to manage. But when my dad bought out his last brother and just had ownership with our own, with our immediate family, he brought in an outside business consultant at the request of a friend of his who had a family business down in Iowa. And he said, you've, you've got to really bring somebody in. You can't do this on your own. It'll be a mess. You just have to have help somebody bring somebody in to help you run this business like a business. And so he took that advice and I still use her. Um, same consultant that we had. I use her more as a coach now and probably the smartest person I've ever met in my life. Just absolutely amazing. And we're by far one of the smallest companies she's ever agreed to work with. And she thinks it's probably been her most um, successful transition that she's ever done in her career. Wow. Very neat. That's fantastic. Yeah, and great experience, and, and I've learned my biggest life lessons from her, and she really helped me to become a leader. I don't know if I could have done it quite as well or as fast without her. Testament or to at all. that it's always helpful to have other people, even if it's outside folks, come in and, and lend a hand. It's good perspective. My father taught me from the time I was a young child, get good advice and follow it. And I think that's just so important and, and love getting advice and love listening to people and just figuring out, okay, what do we do now? And you have to be the one that makes the decision, but at least you get some input. You, you, you know, you get input and maybe it changes your, the trajectory and maybe it doesn't, but at least you've thought things through. Mm -hmm. So what kind of um, transformational advice did she give and how did that help evolve the business over time? So probably the best advice, you know, we were trying to figure out when we, when my dad bought the last of the company, he was, he was president and he was president. His father had named him president. So my grandfather was president for many decades. My father was president for decades. And when we all got in the room and, and, you know, it's just us, all the new owners, he's like, I don't want to run this company. I don't want to be the president. I, I don't want to do this. And we need to find a new president. And so we have to figure out if it's somebody in the room or if it's somebody outside of here. And so we so brought Leslie Dashu into our consultant to kind of help figure that out. And his, his big deal was, you know, how do I pick a new person? And she came in and she said, well, Howard, it's not really your choice. There's a new generation that's going to be leading this company. The next generation is, will be the one to pick the next leader. And it was like the weight of the world was lifted off his shoulders. And she's like, you'll be there to consult. You'll be part of the process, but let's let the decision with the next generation. And he thought that was great as long as he had input and, and certainly knew he'd be listened to because um, he was still planning on working there for many decades yet. So 
you didn't want to make any mistakes and wanted to be comfortable with who was ever in that seat. So how did that look then with the next generation? How did you guys go about that process? So Leslie came in about once a quarter. She was living in Atlanta at the time. So she'd come in about once a quarter and we'd talk about the transition. And sometimes she'd come and just give us training and we wouldn't talk about the transition. So she just kind of led that process. And after a couple of years, it was, it was just kind of became clear um, that they wanted me to do it. That's neat. But it has to be a process and it's got a, the process is probably more important than the outcome. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of conversations that get you to that point. There's in a family business, there's just a lot of feelings that come into it. Right. And that was probably the biggest deal is dealing with people's feelings. And, you know, it's like, well, so-and-so, you know, they might want to be president. And, and so it's just going through the process of, you know, who's got the, you know, who's got the education, you know, who's, who wants to do it. And, you know, part of it was not everybody wanted to do it by any means, but it took a long time to, to convince certain siblings that other siblings wanted nothing to do with that role. But that's, again, a process and, and you know, sometimes required outside training where, you know, certain people would go to, you know, maybe an event for a week and just kind of see it's like, OK, here's here's what it looks like being a CEO of a company. Do you want to do it? Um, you know, so where you really did some deep dives where you could really figure out, do you want this life or not? Family business. I, I just was going back to that thinking, you know, I obviously um, am with Jay Longs and I'm, I'm not part of the Long family, but I'm one of the four owners and I'm the odd one out because I'm not a Long. So it's interesting to watch the dynamics of a family business. Uh, and thankfully, over the years, um, we have carved out roles and, and delegated certain tasks that, um, you know, to all of us that we know we have certain strengths with. But it took time. We didn't hire somebody like Leslie, an outside consultant, but we, it was kind of more experience and also starting to listen to other people's wisdom outside as well about that. So I was just going to say, wow, I mean, trying to delegate that whole thing and figure that out and then also still get along and kind of like each, kind of like each other, maybe a lot, maybe a little, um, was there, um, was there some screaming matches, battles, um, internal struggles multiple times, or did that kind of get mitigated because you had the consultant and your dad being Mr. Steady Eddie? It was mostly mitigated. Um, but I remember in one board meeting where Leslie were, was there, we were talking about something and I got really upset and blew up at this board meeting and which is typically not what I do, but I just, I just, I just had it and just, you know, going off about something. And so, you know, end of the meeting, she's like, Hey, why don't you bring me back down to my hotel? And it's like, Oh God, I'm the one that got picked to drive her back. This isn't good. So we get in the car and she sits down and she said, you know, you can never do that again. I said, okay, do exactly what she said. You reacted rather than responded. She said, it's pretty clear where this is going and where, what seats you're going to be in. You never from this day forward have that luxury. You have to respond. You can never react like that. And it was the best advice I've ever gotten. And I would say probably in my professional and personal life, I maybe haven't missed up with that more than less than a handful of times, just because you just, you can train yourself to do that. Best advice I've ever gotten. Most useful thing, which I've, I've said that in every little speech that I've given when I was on the greater Mankato growth board, did a lot of the young professional things and always talked about that. Cause I just thought it was such a valuable lesson. Never react, always respond, respond, don't react. Yep. Yeah. hundred percent. That's very good. And she's like, do you understand the difference? It's like, oh yeah, I know the difference. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. I got it. How do you do that? Because obviously it's controlling your emotions and it what, is. You're, what you're hearing. And obviously if you're a fast thinker and a fast talker, 
uh, as you are, right? Um, and as a lot of people are, um, so you have to force yourself to be calm, to listen to other people and understand they just want to be heard. Is that part of it? You do. You just have to control it. And it doesn't take very long. It's just like a split second. And there's some things where it's like, okay, you just, you got to call a timeout. And if you have the luxury to call a timeout, it's like, you know, I just got to get my head around this. Not really sure how I'm feeling about this. Let's talk about it tomorrow. Right. And, and I encourage, you know, our leadership to, to really do the same thing. It's like, you know, if you get into a situation, just call a timeout. You know, there's not many decisions I can't wait to be made until tomorrow. Right. And if it's really getting heated, just wait, you know, and you can use that. That's good information that you're getting, but if it gets out of control, you just got to stop. How has that advice that you were given, that very valuable advice, um, been used in uh, parenthood for you with your boys? Used it all the time, all the time. Just absolutely great advice. Um, Also was pretty good friends when our kids were really young with the author who wrote the book Teenage is a Second Language Mm. and got great advice from her and followed that as well. And just, I think, made life much, much easier. But, you know, kids especially, they have no control. You know what five-year-old can control anything? Mm-hmm. They control nothing, but they want to control something in their little world. So I think it just forces you to maybe listen and maybe think that through a little bit. And it's like, okay, you know, this little guy needs a win on this one or or at least needs to be listened to. And, you know, you can't just say no to say no. And it's just kind of maybe explaining at the right time why you said no or why that didn't work and, and just really try not to react with them either. Yeah, it's great advice. Because it's just always, I, I don't like backpedaling. You know, every time that I, that I react rather than respond, I got a backpedal and mm-hmm. it just takes so much time. And then it's just like, ah, you know, you see that little <laughs> kid that you just disappointed and they're just so sad. And it's like, that was just, that was bad handling. What did I do? It was just stupid. It's like, don't, don't react like that. Just stop it. Yeah. When you said, uh, there's very few things in our business that you have to deal with in this very same moment, it flashed me to. Jane Schwickert's line about there's no such thing as a wine glass emergency. And that's what she calls it. And that's more of a customer service tip. You know, if, if someone comes up with an issue, it's, you know, it's a pretty champagne problem in that situation. <laughs> and I've adopted that at Zans. I call it a taco emergency. No one, no one's having a taco. emergency. <laughs> Leave it to but Jane. That's perfect. That is that, good. That's it's a good. home run. Yeah. That's great. That is a good one for sure. I think this is a wonderful time to take a second to do a shout out to our fantastic drink sponsor. We actually call them our spirit sponsor. And that is the awesome Chancaska Creek Ranch Winery and distillery. Thank you, Wes. Um, Wow. The product mix that Chancaska has is just fantastic. That was a really good pop there, Ron. That was great. Um, So, oh, thank you, Wes. I always love it because people can't tell if somebody's peeing next to the microphone or they're pouring themselves a drink. That's the best. You decide, audience. But we are so blessed with their partnership from the beginning. Um, they believed in us and what what our um, our goal was to have deep conversations with good people. Um, and so if you haven't tried their product, um, please do. Uh, they have their Chancaska Spirits, their Ranch Road Rye, the Ranch Road Whiskey, their, their, their uh, bourbons, their straight bourbons. They also, of course, are known for their wines that you can find anywhere, even at the uh, wonderful sporting events in Minnesota. Ron, what are you sipping on tonight there, my friend? On their Ranch Road Whiskey, and this is amazing. You might not have this bottle left here when I leave. That's fine. It's, it's all smooth. yours. Very good. <laughs> what about you, Wes? What are you sipping tonight? Straight bourbon. That's my go-to. I love it. And I, myself, am actually uh, sipping on the apple brandy. Um, I haven't had it for a while, but John Taylor, the winemaker out there, introduced me to it on live on um, on air one time in 103.5, and I liked it a lot, and I saw it on the table, so that's what I'm sipping on. 
Uh, obviously, they have fantastic spirits, you guys, and wines and also dessert drinks. But uh, if you've never been out there before in the grounds, um, it's about three quarters of the way from Mankato to St. Peter, Highway 22. Um, go out there, enjoy a bonfire, some live music, or um, potentially book your wedding there. Just had the cheese bread last week. I was out there. It was dang good. They yeah, do a super great good job. It's, it's a great business. Yeah, great to have it in town. Kent and Jane and their whole crew have done an amazing job. And I don't know if I've ever been there where Jane hasn't been out there working. Yeah. And they are just, they have put their heart and soul into it. It's just a beautiful spot. And the grounds, it just, it's peaceful. You can always find a little nook or a corner or something to kind of sit down and just enjoy life. So it's great. So thank you to Chancask again for your sponsorship. So back to Ron. Uh, what year was it when you took over as president? Um, 2000. Okay, so you had about a decade in before you ended up taking over that leadership role. Yeah, yep. And what were you always in sales leading up to that point? I was, and then just kind of started doing more administrative work, um, as I was allowed to, and just doing more of the leadership work, and just eventually morphed into that where I, I was still, when I took over as president, I was still doing a lot of the sales work, and I think had one or two, just had one other sales rep at the time. So knew that had to be kind of on, you know, first docket. It's like, we've got to, we have to get more sales reps here. It can't rely on two people. And just made a lot of changes, just a little more safety net for the people in the plant, for the office. Um, so it's kind of my first order of business is just sharing more information and just putting a leadership team together. Very good. Yeah, it seems like sales is a, a common pathway to the leadership roles too. It's There's something about knowing your customers that well that's super important for businesses and their leadership roles, but also just uh, I think there's a charisma or there's a, a, an ability to deal with other people when you're in sales. So it makes sense that that was you know the pathway that worked for you. Um, and you touched on a few of the things that you did right away when you took over, but did you have a larger vision of, of what you wanted to see happen and how did that unfold over time? Well, at the time we were really busy. We had, I think we were a lot bigger than, than we are now. Now I think we're the right size. We were, we were just too large at the time. We had bought, just purchased Alabama stone and was absolutely an incredible mess. There's nothing that worked. If, if you touched any metal in the plant, you were getting a shock. Um, had to replace all the craneways. There was no heat. There were no lights. Um, had to do a lot for the infrastructure. And it took probably oh, seven years, eight years before we could even really start to promote the material because there's a lag in, in the quarry time. And had to find special equipment over in Italy to have made and bring over here to work in an underground quarry. What they had just simply didn't work. They were maybe getting out on a really good year, 200 blocks. And we need like 2,500 blocks out a year. So it took a long time to... There's a lot of lost time, and it took a long time to kind of get built up where we needed to get back to. Well, let's even hit pause on that for a second. How did you guys decide that you wanted the Alabama Stone Quarry, and what did that look like as far as acquisition, and, and what was the thought process there? It was not well planned. Um, so my father fell in love with the material probably 30 years before we bought it, sure. and they had bought some, some material and worked some material, and he just thought it was great, but his brothers didn't really have the appetite to do a, a purchase like that, so... As soon as he bought out his last brother, he was down in Alabama and knocked on the door and just, you know, showed up uninvited and, and just literally went in the front office door and looked for the owner. And the owner said, well, I don't want to sell. I'm not going to sell this company. What are, you, what are you doing here? And he said, well, here's my card. If you ever, you know, want to sell it, give me a call. And so he called a year later and the guy was in his early 70s and said, my family wants me to get out. Nobody wants this business. And if you want it, here's the price. We have to close in 30 days. So we closed in 30 days. So not a lot of time for due wow. diligence. And 
I mean, it was, the place was a disaster, but they had an incredible quarry. And my dad just saw that vision. And I remember talking to our attorney at the time and he said, um, okay, I went down there with your father. And, and at the time they were doing some charter flights and, and my father and I aren't allowed to fly together. And so I hadn't made the trip down. I was just looking at everything through images. And you said, he, just for a pause for other people's awareness, you say your father and you weren't allowed to fly together. I'm assuming from like a corporate security standpoint or. Yeah, just from a, we need one of us to, sure. you know, if I passed away, he could run the business, vice versa. So it was just really protecting the business. So we didn't want to, and we tried to kind of limit our driving together as well. Some people might have thought maybe you had a spat or something. So yeah, just yeah. that would be good. It to took clarify. me a second, no. and then I was yeah. I pieced that together. No, just from a safety perspective, just having Makes sense. not having our top leadership fly together. So I didn't go down there, and our, our attorney called, and he said, "Okay, off the record conversation here. Did we have you seen that place?" I said, "No, but I've looked at the pictures." He said, "Do you have any idea what you're getting into? That place is an absolute mess." I said, "I know, I know it's a mess," but I said the vision is there, and yes, he knows what he's doing, and yes, we're buying the company. So it just took a long time to get it built back up again. And now when you go in there, it's one of the nicest cut stone facilities anywhere in the country. It's amazing. Wow. So and you've mentioned also um, that Alabama is an underground quarry as opposed to Casota, which is surface mine, surface mine. Okay. Can you explain the difference to in layman's terms to people that don't understand exactly what that means? What's, what's the details on how do you quarry you know, just explain that to us. So it's a That'd lot more difficult to quarry underground. You know, you've got a lot of safety things. So we do MSHA mm -hmm. inspections every um, quarter. And so you'll have a team in there inspecting the underground quarry every quarter, which is good. That's that's we as far as the um, making sure that the ceilings and the Yeah, you know, they just they check everything. They just okay. they look at everything. Um, yeah, there's just nothing that they won't look at and, and so really forces us to take a really deep dive and look in both facilities because we, we get inspections here as well. But when you're going into the wall, you're advancing the heading. It's really a complicated procedure and takes really complicated equipment. And so you've got to have special quarry saws that are, are made to cut in. They won't cut into the roof because you, you don't cut into your, you know, the structure that's holding it up. And then you have to leave columns every 50 feet. So you leave a 30 foot by 30 foot column every 50 feet as you go. So right now we've got about 28 acres opened up under the quarry. So you, when we drive back now, we're driving back probably a quarter of a mile um, to be in the quarry section that we're going. So we... We advance that heading, it's a 16 foot um, stratum that we take out. And then we, we quarry the floor, two floors beyond that. So we're taking out a 30 foot high stratum underneath the mountain. Wow. So pretty spectacular when you're in there, but it takes really specialized equipment to do it. So we quarry, when we're doing the heading, that's really specialized equipment. It's just pretty simple floor saws that quarry the floor. And so we do the, the floor the same way that we do our Minnesota operation on the surface mine. You're just, you're cutting down, cutting it, you're on top of the cake, cutting it down. Okay. Gotcha. So how big is the Alabama quarry? Um, that's about 863 acres. So if you're only 28 acres in, is that what you said? So you've got a long ways to go product-wise. Yeah, when we did the geological surveys down there about 10 years ago, um, reserves were estimated at well over 1,000 years. That is wow. fantastic. Mm -hmm. Wow. How about the Mankato quarry? Uh, figure reserves here, probably three to 400 years. Impressive. That's a lot. Because that was one of my questions that I had written down was, it's just, you know, when it comes to supply and demand, is there any concern on the supply side? But no. it doesn't sound like it. No. So we <laughs> want to create more demand. Do you sure. get that question a lot? We do. We get yeah, that question from figure. almost every client. Yeah. Um, so I <clears throat> heard you talking um, on a video not too long ago to a young gal, and you were explaining, and I thought this was super interesting, but 
um, every one inch of limestone in, in the, is, I don't know if it's the same in Alabama, but every one inch is about 2,500 to 5,000 years old. Right. So it takes one inch, it takes 2,500 to 5,000 years to form each inch. So it's a sedimentary material. So it just keeps, you know, the sediment goes down, but to come up with an inch of material, it takes that long. So when you've got a block, some of the blocks that we'll pull out, they'll be, you know, three and a half feet tall. Some will go up as far as seven feet tall. And you think of, you know, you do the math and you see how many years that it took, how many thousands of years to form that one block. It gets to be pretty magical. And when you look at the top of the block to the bottom of the block, the color, there's some variation in color, but it's pretty subtle. And so pretty magical to clients to know, you know, to kind of do the math and do the difference on the top of the block to the bottom and how many years that took. Right. And they really get an appreciation for that variation and sometimes want to build in more variation into their building just because I think that's a really neat part of the story and they want to show that on their building. Yeah. They want to be able to talk about that. Yeah. You used magical more than just stones. It is more than right. just stones. <laughs> and what I've learned over the years is it's a really, really emotional purchase for people. Yeah very emotional. I've had so many homeowners, so many commercial clients that just sit there and they just bawl when they see that when they either select their material or when they see it going up in their home or on their business, really emotional. Leading architects get really emotional over the material. Well, it's got to be really neat because from your perspective, I mean, as long as you've been doing this, you know, you've got projects from small to tall. Uh, like you said before, from your mantles and your hearths to skyscrapers and, and uh, obviously stadiums like Target Field and, and all these places around the world. Um, how does that feel for you, Ron, to drive past local projects and, and things like that, but also just to know that there's a piece of you and your family and our history here locally that's literally sitting and probably not going to be gone anytime soon unless some crazy natural disaster happens and knocks it all down. But I mean, that stone, it's a stone structure. Um, that's got to be a pretty fulfilling feeling. It is. For it's, you it's, to, to see that. It absolutely is. And it's, it gets emotional for us as well. And to know that you're part of something that's going to be there for so long and, and certainly outlive me and, and generations. And to know that you kind of have that legacy and that mark, it's just really nice to do something tangible. And I feel really spoiled to have something tangible. And it's not the steel girder inside that you don't get to see. Um, it's the, it's the part that you really get to see that really has that impact that maybe draws people into it. Um, our materials really tactile. We don't see many people touching stone buildings, especially marbles and things. They look at them, but they don't generally touch with our material. The one thing I've noticed is almost everybody touches it. They massage it. So it's just very tactile and very warm and brings them in a little closer. And it just brings a whole nother sense into their, whatever they're building, whether it's their home or a project and gets to be very personal for them. You get asked this a lot, but if you could go through as many as you want uh, projects that you guys are a part of that maybe are impressive to folks that are listening across the country, across the world. Mm. I know there's embassies. I know there's museums. There's all kinds Universities, of really cool projects. St. Thomas. I know St. Thomas is a special has a special spot in your heart. I believe all, all, all of my sons went there, and you. I still have one. One year to go. I got my grad degree from there. Yep. Uh, my brother Don went there. My brother Bob got his MBA from there as well. Uh, my sister Mary went there for a while. So a long family history. My brother's kids have, he's got at least two graduates from there. When did, uh, when did that project happen or when did that get pitched? 
That happened in, when did they build the Anderson buildings? Probably 15 years ago. Okay. And that was the first time we got on the campus. So it was a long time yeah. of, of working, trying to get on the campus. Right. Um, so it was really fun when we finally made it but there. But you reminded them of all the money you spent over the years and sent <laughs> yes. all your kids there. You said, hey, I, I think you should probably use our family stone. Yes. Right? I certainly remind them of that. <laughs> I don't know if it has any impact. We just will be doing another building there sh- starting shortly. That's awesome. So That's really cool. I've seen pictures. It looks great. The Thank Anderson you. building, you said? Yeah, the two Anderson buildings were the, are the ones that we started with. And, okay. And now we'll be doing some other work for them. Okay. Arguably right. one of the most gorgeous campuses uh, from an architectural standpoint in the entire state, I, I think. Yeah. And I almost went there. I was between MSU and St. Thomas, and it was real hard to choose between the two. But For yeah. architectural purposes. It was hard for you to choose, right? Yes, it was entirely based <laughs> on the buildings. So <laughs> that was exactly it. Uh, so what other projects, Ron, like Wes asked, was there, is there ones that kind of just speak to your spirit and your soul like that around the world or other places? About two years ago, maybe even a year and a half ago, we finished the, a large edition um, at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And that's, that's the largest stone job ever done with this material back in the 20s and just spectacular. That's where they filmed the Rocky, you know, it's the oh, Rocky yeah. steps going up the building. And sure. everything in the outside, everything in the inside would have come from here. So they did a large addition to it. And just working with the museum president and um, the board of trustees and how personal they took it. Frank Gehry was the architect on it. We've done a lot of work for Frank Gehry, who's one of the most influential architects in the country. And to work super close with their team. I had many trips out there looking at material, figuring out exactly what ledges we're using, how we're matching it, how close the match they wanted in certain areas. Um, for them, it was just very emotional, very personal, and it had to be perfect. And was just a really fun, really interesting team to work with. Not necessarily easy, um, but really rewarding. You know, I had the team here many times and, and had some of them out to my house and just really developed a nice relationship with them. And that's what I think really got us the nice job is just kind of working together, all pulling in the same direction and just having access to the, to the top leadership to make sure they were getting what they wanted. So that was really fun. That was really re- rewarding. Yeah. And where can people see that? Again, remind us. Uh, right down in town, Philadelphia. Okay. So Philadelphia Museum of Art. Okay. So very fun. And other, you know, a lot of homes that we've done, you know, where, you know, and they don't necessarily have to big, big homes. We certainly have done big homes. We've done small homes, but where it's just so, where you can tell they've really literally, I've had clients come in where they have literally searched the world. They've been to France, they've been to Italy, they've looked at everything and they come in and, and we had one guy who he built a large home up in Canada came in and he just starts crying. He said, I found it. He said, I've been all over the world. I've been traveling nonstop. I just found my home. And he was, it was, he was, he would send me pictures of himself kissing the stone every week. <laughs> he said his contractor thinks he's absolutely crazy, but he was just that enamored. It was that big of a deal to him. What yeah. a testimony though. I mean, you can't really ask for much more from a marketing standpoint either. No, if that guy's willing not. to, you know, put his pen to paper and, and write that down for you, take some pictures. That's yeah. If you can share the pictures of him kissing the stone, <laughs> I think yeah. that's marketing gold. There Absolutely. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, what was I going to ask? Oh, yeah. So when did the, when did the uh, decision for you, Ron, to um, change over to from president to CEO uh, chairman plus chairman. When did that transition happen? Uh, so just a little over a year ago. Okay. And, but you know, it's a process. It's a process to just, you know, think it through myself and get some outside advice. I'm in a group called young presidents organization. So it's like having your own little board of directors, you know, so talking to that group about it, you know, here's what I think I want to do. 
and having them test your thinking and having them kind of poke holes in it and have you think about certain things and what does this really look like and you know what's best for the company and then you know dealing with family members um you know who still own the company and, and getting them comfortable with it and going down that road so it, it's just really a process and it's not an immediate process it's got to be a, and i knew it wouldn't be a you know, when I started getting the idea that I thought it was time to to bring somebody in, an outsider in, non-family member to be in that role, mm-hmm. you know, it's, you know, first convincing myself and then getting outside, you know, talking to my legal counsel and just others just really kind of testing me to make sure that my thinking is good and that it's a good move for the company. How did that come about? How did uh, you decide that you were at that point that you were ready to transition out? Um, I think I just need, knew that I needed outside input and I needed a different way of thinking and a little a fresher younger look at things um, somebody who looks at things in a very very different way than i do and just started becoming clear that we had that person in-house right and really started grooming ben to do that job and you know just wanted to make sure you know you just you, you just kind of watch them in leadership at the time doing the you know leading the the group that they are and you know kind of imagine okay can i imagine him leading the company at this point and you know, what would it, if, if there's anything you have to work on, what would that be in assessing those things? So in 2020, <clears throat> excuse me, in 2020, um, Ben Kaus, local boy, named president of Vetter Stone, the first non-family officer and leader of the company. Um, previous, um, we had, uh, was it uh, Jay Vetter Sr.? Yeah, my uh, grandfather. Your grandfather. All better. Yeah. Uh, Howard and then Ron, yourself, obviously. Um, and then Ben. Interesting to name somebody that's not a family member. Was that difficult for you? Was it difficult for other family members in the business? Or would it, did it seem like a pretty natural transition after six years of service from, from no, Ben? No, it, it, was, it was more of a process than that. For me, it was pretty easy. And I like change. And to me, I would change like everything every day. Um, And I'm not afraid of change and I'm not afraid of giving up control Um, and kind of watch my father give up control when I became president. And, you know, there were a number of things that I did that my dad would come to me right after I took over, um, did a couple of strategic moves. And he said, geez, I don't understand why you're doing this. It makes no sense to me. And, And it was about hiring key individuals and makes absolutely no sense. I don't know why you're doing this. Last thing in the world I would do. And um, it's when I was first went out to hire an HR manager. We didn't have an HR manager and had 225 employees. He said, there's going to be nothing for him to do. It's a part-time job at best. <laughs> and I'm like, well, no, there's a little more to it than that. And, yeah. and, but he was really good about sharing. He's like, I wouldn't do this for anything. I think it makes no sense. But your president, do whatever you think you need to do. So I made the hire. And I think he came in my office and sat across from me six months later. Best decision you've ever made for this company. And then we did the same thing when I, I put a controller in place well, this makes no sense. It's a, you know, maybe it's a part-time job and it's like, no, we need this position. And said again, last thing I'd ever do for this company makes no sense to me, but you're running the company, do what you think you need to do. So came in again a few months after that, second best decision you've ever made for the company. So he was really good about telling me, you know, if he thought my decisions were good or not, but then saying it's your job, you have to do what you think you need to do. And, you know, I was pretty strong with him and, you know, he was a staunch German, but I could hold my own pretty well. And, and just, if I made a decision, I'd make a decision and, you know, hope most of them are right. And they're not always going to all be right. Would you consider yourself a visionary? Maybe. 
I, I think maybe I am, but it doesn't seem like I am. I mean, what but kind of leader probably. would you say you are? I mean, you're seeing, you're seeing these things, you're pushing progress forward, right? To try to move this to your family company into bigger and better things and into the future. Um, it's, yeah, it just sounds like such a big word. A visionary. <laughs> you're too humble, Ron. You're a visionary. Yeah. I mean, someone that is willing to step aside and, and let up the reins uh, because they know that it's for the betterment of the company is is someone that's a visionary, right? Because yeah. you're still you're still shepherding. You're not gone. You've still got your CEO and chairman role, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that role, and it's a great role for me. And it actually allows having a president in place. I can actually do the CEO duties, which I really couldn't do when I had both of those duties. I just, I, there's, I could do some of the visionary work, but there was very little time for that. And what, uh, what would you say that your day to day looks like now? Um, spend a lot more time. So we opened a showroom in downtown Minneapolis. So I'm trying to, I'm spending officing out of there on Thursday and Friday, and I'm just trying to get a much better presence up there. We do a lot of commercial work. We do some residential, but I think we can do a lot more residential. So really trying to nurture more high end residential up there. And so just really trying to bring that to fruition, make that work, and then maybe do that in other markets as well. That's the International Market Building, right? It is, International Market Square. And uh, how's that been performing for you? I know that that was a big initiative that you guys launched. still fairly new, um, but starting to get some traction in there and starting to get some clients in there that I think it will actually work exactly how we want it to work. Good. Starting to see it. Good. And you've got some other company up there that's also in similar spaces, right? Isn't there some others in the same industry? There are, and we're encouraging yet another to kind of come into that building as well. I think the more of us, the better. Yeah, makes Um, sense. Yeah, absolutely. So nurturing that as well and trying to make that happen. So, and that's a a very Midwest, a Twin Cities presence. Um, Are people traveling, though, from other parts of the country to go to visit that showroom, do you think, uh, in the future if they aren't already? I think they are. There's more and more traffic in there, but I don't really expect to get any traffic that just walks in and walks by our little spot and comes in. We, we get mm-hmm. some of that, yeah. but we're really there to invite people in, to invite right. specific di- designers in, architects in, homeowners in. And that's really what we're doing now is that reach out um, to make sure we get people in that room so they really know what we've got. Because your goal is, is obviously beyond just Midwestern customers, right? You'd love to do more uh, international work, and especially on the home side, you'd be happy to do more work all across the country, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and if this works, I wouldn't mind mimicking this in other markets. So this is kind of our test market to see if we want to do that. And, sure. and we'll still get a lot of work outside of here. A lot of the people that are working with the designers in Minneapolis are building homes somewhere else. And so that still will get us more attention. But Makes sense. Yeah, so it was really nice to bring a, a new leader in mm-hmm. and, and you know see a fresh perspective. And, and Ben and I operate differently. I, I'm much more intuitive-based. Ben is very analytical, very data. And so I think it's a really allowed us to put those two tools together and make much better decisions. And I think our growth will be much faster because of the um, process that we both go through and really go to challenge each other in a really healthy, good way. And we just think things through different. And, you know, we just, we're not too rash to make decisions. We'll talk about things and it's like, all right, let's talk about it tomorrow. Um, you know, just have to think about it more in a different way. You know, because he challenges me to think in a different way. I challenge him to think different. And then you've got to go and kind of redo your assessment and come in the next day or the next week to see if you still have the same idea or if it's kind of morphed. Do you both work on the company pretty holistically or is it uh, Ben is very much focused on operations within the plant and the facilities uh, and you're looking at things more top level or how does how does that piece work no we talk a lot i i you know i've really stepped away he does the day-to-day and if he you know if he wants to ask a question he'll come in and ask a question and um but he lets me know he really communicates well so i know what's going on um and then i try not to 
you know, if I want to weigh in on something, I'll weigh in, but typically want to wait for him to come and ask for help if he wants help on something or wants input on something. And he will, it's just got to be the right time. And then he'll come in. It's like, Hey, let's talk this through. What do you think of this? And, you know, cause he's still doing his due diligence on things. So I'll hear about things that are maybe happening, but you know, they're still kind of brewing for him and he, he maybe is still getting his arms around it and we'll bring it in. So really we, we work really closely together. We both have sales reps that we work with pretty closely. Um, some will go more to him. Some will go more to me. And so we just, we combine those forces really well. Good. And I still try to stay in the sales role and do some selling. I just can't get too tied up with it. Makes sense. <clears throat> Ron, did you know that there's actually another Ron Vetter? A Dr. Ron Vetter. Uh, he's a professor of computer science at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. He's got his PhD in computer science. He actually got that PhD from the University of Minnesota. So I'm not sure if you knew there was another Ron Vetter, but have you ever have you heard of this other guy? No, but he must be the smart one. Well, and I was going to say, now you've know there's another one do you think there's a potential like you might have to duke it out at some point to see who's the superior ron vetter maybe but he sounds really smart he, he's pretty <laughs> smart but you're intuitive you could just hire him but you've got intuition and and we consider you a visionary so you might have certain skills i might so. have that over him <laughs> how many aaron jones do you think aaron would have to duke it out with well there's it, there is one locally in in uh, lake crystal he's a farmer oh. he's a few years older than me okay. and uh i found that out um when I was in high school, actually, he had a farming accident. He lost the lower part of his leg. And I was getting text messages asking if I was okay because people had heard there was an accident and Aaron Jones was involved. Oh. And I was like, got done with track practice. I'm like, what the heck's going on here? And then I actually met him like seven, eight years ago. He came into the store, walks in, comes up to the counter and goes, points at me and goes, Aaron Jones? And he, he, when somebody does it, you're like, oh, oh no. What, what did I do? What's happening? <laughs> And I said, yeah. And he goes, points back at himself and says, Aaron Jones. And uh, then I said, no way, you're the other one. And then we hugged and took a picture. It was pretty funny. That's so, fun. Yeah. But no, Ron, you didn't know that. So I maybe you'll have to that. meet him. Dr. Ron Vetter. That's fantastic. I also want people to know that there, there's some, um, there, there's a really cool carving uh, downtown, right? On uh, a beautiful stone uh, carving downtown Mankato an old telephone building. Do you want to give any more detail on that? Cause I believe there's some connection to your family there that I think is pretty neat. And if people have grown up in this community, um, they've probably seen it and maybe didn't think too much about it even. Yeah. So on the old MCTC building now consolidated. Mm -hmm. So after a few changes. So the telephone lineman is something that my grandfather helped design and went to the board of directors and, and he, I've got a little mock-up of it, a wood mock-up and a plaster mock-up of it in my office. And that's what he brought in to show them the carving that they wanted to do in the building. And it was a really great little thing. And he just wanted that. It was near the end of his career and wanted that to be his last carving. So I think he did from the, the neck up and did the head and, you know, just came in and we have pictures with his little, he's got this big wood hammer <laughs> and his little chisel and I still got the hammer and chisel and he just would chisel away and was an incredible carver, was just really good with his hands and <laughs> had terrible arthritis. He would take, he was a beekeeper and kept bees so he could go and wash his hands with bees, um, which is what they make a lot of the medicines out of is the bee venom. So I don't know how he wash if, his hands with bees. Mm -hmm. That's a term I've never heard. Same. Huh. Yeah. And so whatever is, the, is in their little venom is what they make a lot of arthritis medicines from. So I don't know how he ever figured out that out or how he knew that or where that came from. But yeah, I can't imagine going into his little beekeeping station and washing his hands with bees to get stung up. So it would give him some relief. Wow. That's nuts. Yeah. Isn't it? 
So how old was he when he carved the head of that linesman down he there? He would have been probably old. in his oh upper 70s, mid to, mid to probably mid 70s. Well, for those of you who are listening and you're wondering what we're talking about, it's I'm trying to I'm going to try to get the streets right, but it's um, is it second and or is it broad? I think and? it's broad and hickory. Broad and hickory. I think you're right. And I, it's on the broad street side, right? It's the it's the, now the current consolidated communications building. Yes. And if you drive by down that street, broad and hickory, um, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's a large, um. Not drawing. I'm trying. Not a sketch. What is it? It's a it's a bas relief sculpture, sculpture coming out of the building, right out of the building. Yeah, it's carved in. Um, it's it's pretty unique. And how how tall would you say, or how big would you say that carving is? Right? Oh, it's pretty big. It's got to be. I would think the carving itself probably has to stretch over twelve or fourteen feet. Yeah, but really a beautiful piece of it's art. It's really just neat. an amazing piece. It's when and when you look at the detail, detail is really incredible. Right. I've always known it was there. I've always admired it, but I never knew that it was your dad. That's a very cool story. Yeah, yeah my grandfather. Grandfather, grandfather yeah. sorry. Yeah. He, he loved the idea of it, and he just said, that's got to be my last carving. Yeah. Oh, and that was his last carving. It's super cool. I love it. How was doing the um, target field project, you know, being that it's, you know, obviously there's other things in the state too, but what was it like for those listening that are baseball fans and maybe have heard of Vetterstone for the first time knowing about the target field a contribution or that project um what was that like was that pretty cool were they easy to work with or were they kind of a pain in the ass they were great it was okay, an amazing good. team we had a team of 27 people come down to look at the mock-up when we had built a mock-up for them and they still didn't really know what they wanted they they weren't weren't sure what colors what textures so we were just kind of guessing and we had to put something up really quick i think we had less than a week to do it wow and so just put something up to the best of our ability after looking at the plans and working with the designers and and so a group came in, and it was um, you know some of the Polad family, the pres- Jerry Bell, who was the president of the organization at the time, um, Dave St. Peter, the architects that that were um, had flown in. I can't remember. I think they were out of Kansas, and just had this entire team of stakeholders, you know, really trying to figure out what they wanted. And and so they they picked that day exactly what they wanted, but they had changed some of the colors and some of the textures and. Um, but they were all absolutely amazing. Jerry Bell is one of the greatest guys I've ever met. Just incredible. And he was about my father's age, and they just got along incredibly well. Dave St. Peter, um, you know, two little kids at the time, or maybe more. And just, you know, probably the nicest guy you could ever meet. And, and the Polad family that we met, I mean, the nicest, like all gentlemen, all incredible, just great to work with. Um, was just a really fun project through and through. You know, and usually there's some angst, there's, you know, things that don't go well, it's construction. And from dealing with Mortensen and everybody, it was just phenomenal. That's great. Yeah, great experience. And I ran into Jerry Bell um, going up to Twins Fest a number of times after that. And, you know, just great to run into him. And, you know, I've talked to Dave St. Peter from time to time on the phone and just couldn't be better. Just incredible leaders, just amazing, just really grounded and, you know, you have no idea if you just met them, you'd have no idea. They really did anything. They're just super grounded and just very humble. And another very neat legacy piece for you and the family too. Yeah. It's really fun to go there. As far as working with engineers, architects, people that are designing these projects, Ron, are most of them um, as easy to work with as that project, the target fielder is there, is it pretty difficult at times and you get a lot of personalities who, um, you know, uh, make, make it difficult to do what you do at times. Obviously it sounds like you've learned a lot of patience and, and taking your time to um, 
<laughs> not react, but to, uh, how did you say it again? We're going to repeat it again. Respond. Respond. Respond not don't re- react. Don't react. Um, but how is that like working with people that might have big egos? It really industry? varies. And, and some of the people we work with are, are some of the biggest designers, you know, like Frank Gehry and Cesar Pelli and, and, you know, they're very demanding and they want what they want. And what I found are the really big ones, the really successful ones are really good at listening and they'll, they'll really listen. It's like, what can this material do? And where do we want to use it? And where do we want to stop? Where, you know, we want to push it as far as we can, but where's the breaking point? Where do we stop and where don't we, don't we go any farther with our design? And so I think the really successful ones do that. Um, and then you just have to really watch. There's certain architects which will, you know, they'll want to, they'll kind of pretend that they know everything, but you know they need to know more. And then you just have to get on that information in just kind of quieter ways and certainly not in front of a crowd. <laughs> and Makes sense. Yeah. And it's really hard to figure out in a building who's making the final decision. And it's anything but clear. And you can have eight people in a room and, you know, you don't know, is it the owners are up making a decision? Is it the owner? Is it the architect? Um there's a lot of different people that can really be the person. So we never take for granted that we know who the decision maker is. And so we always just try to make sure that we're talking to everybody and dealing with everybody in the project to smart. Yeah. Very smart things you learn over time. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, I've got a friend in construction and he's in construction management. He's a project manager too, I think is his level right now. And he works for cross Anderson. Mm-hmm. So, and he's, uh, he's told me many, a. Uh, a story because he of course as a, a general contractor you work with all of the same clients that you were just talking about the client themselves the owner's rep the architect and i think the architect is his least favorite person to work with because you know in their industry that's usually a little bit of a battle they but, can be hard to rein in they can be very yeah. dreamy and sometimes not overly practical mm-hmm. um but you just you have to listen to really what where are they trying to get right and so you just have to really listen so then you can respond with what you can actually do yeah. And it's like, well, we, we, you know, here's the reasons we probably don't want to do what you want us to do on this. And, and they'll listen to that. You just yeah. have to do it in a way that's not threatening. And, and this may be not in front of a crowd. As a marketer, I'm curious how you leverage some of those more famous architects that you're working with. How do you use that type of a, a relationship or do you even within your marketing materials? And how do you get the word out that you're working with some folks that are pretty well established? So it's really just, you know, on our website, we have photo credits for, you know, if you see a large project, there will be a photo credit and also an architectural credit. Sure. And that's really it. The imagery. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's smart. Do you hire uh, professional photographers yourself or are you usually leveraging other photographers? Generally working with the um, architect. Sure. And going in together. Gotcha. <clears throat> I love it. I was going to ask you, Ron, as far as, you know, being a family business, um, we haven't talked a ton about your own children, um, but as far as do any of your own kids have a desire to be a part of the family business? Are, are some a part of it now? Um, is that something that you've said, no, you're not going to do this because I'm going to make you go do X, Y, Z first or gain experience somewhere else before you come back to the family business, which a lot of people do. So they, you know, appreciate gaining knowledge and experience other places. So it's the number one question they're asked. So I always kind of listen in and just see if the, you know, what the answers are and what they change. And they, they all three will say the same thing. Um, we don't know. And just trying to figure it out. And, you know, one just graduated from college, um, went to right into grad school at MSU. So now he's taking his CPA exams. Um, so going down more of an accounting road, but I don't think he'll be an accountant. He'll maybe be a controller or something. 
Um, don't really know, but it's a great background financial for most anything. Um, my youngest son is kind of on that same trajectory. And so we'll see. I want to make sure that it's available, um, but I want them to do it only if they really want to do it and have a passion for it. Right. And so it's just too early to tell. And we do have a formal policy that Leslie Dash, who helped us put in place, is that if you're really working there for a career, you have to go somewhere else and have a career first. Amen. And at least a minimum of a year and, and you know, probably and preferably far more than that. Smart. Um, but at least a year. So hopefully I will be strong enough to actually implement that. <laughs> yeah. That's the key. But I think I will. Um, and I think if I don't, Ben will insist on it, yeah. um, which is smart. That's so a good we've policy. had talks about that as well. And I, I think it's super important. And yeah, and I think the experience that I had working outside of there in a couple of different industries and different jobs, it just, it teaches you a lot. And if nothing else, it gives you the confidence. Yeah, I can actually work for somebody else. Um, and I am valuable somebody somewhere else. So I think that, I think just for the individual they need to know, yes, somebody else would hire you. You're not just, you know, you don't have to default to the family business. Well, and not that this is necessarily the case with your kids, but um, I think it's also good for the opposite of, you know, you got to realize what it's like to work for someone else and that you don't always have the protection of, of a parent, you right. know, right? So you've got to still be able to maintain your responsibilities for sure. Yeah, I think it's it's critically important. It just, it has to be part of it. And then you, that really helps them find out. They've all worked there in the summer. They've done internships. They've done you know, some have worked in the plant, some have worked in the office, but they have a flavor for what it's like and certainly have, you know, heard me tell stories over the years. So they'll, they'll see if it's a good fit, but you, you know that better if you're working for somebody else and maybe they'll find something totally unrelated and that's fine. Um, and we'll, so we'll see. And so far I don't see the next generation. I don't see anybody that's really like clamoring to get back in, sure. but we still have some that are really young that we just don't know. Yeah, We'll see, good. but I certainly want it available. I know Ron even better from GMG. So, you know, we have some Loyola connections. I went to school with Mercedes, um, so the Vetter family in that regard. But GMG is how I got to know you a little bit more because of our overlap before you ended up leaving uh, when you were board chair. And so I know not only with GMG, but also other nonprofits locally that you're very community involved. So I'd like to kind of have two different topics here. One that's just more oriented around your work in philanthropy and what you've done here in the community. But then the second side being maybe a bit more of just a general community conversation. We're going through a interesting period where there's a lot of new interest and money that's in the community that's looking to be invested. And so, you know, kind of two topics, but maybe we start with the philanthropy side. Um, so really grew up in a household where you were just expected to do things. And we're expected to be involved. My dad was mayor when I was young of North Mankato. And I remember this really well. I, I must have been five years old or so. And I remember the conversation. It's just impregnated in my head. There were six of us kids. And he came home and he said, hey, it's time to run for re-election again. And, you know, do you guys think I should be mayor again? And I, he wasn't expecting it at all. And the kids are all like, no, no, no. We want you home more. You're, you're at meetings all the time. We want you to be home. No, don't run. And I, the look on his face was, you know, clearly he was just kind of announcing he was doing it yeah. and okay, not running. And yeah. that was, it made the decision right then and there. Okay. I'm, I'm done. Yeah. Um, and it was just really interesting to look at that, but certainly did not stop his community involvement and was always really involved. And, and it was really just the expectation of my parents that you just, you, you're involved. And it was just kind of a non-talked about thing. If you're, if you're going to complain about something, then you better be doing something to, to fix it or don't complain about it. We just didn't have a culture of, of them liking complainers. And, and if you complain, then 
fix whatever it is. Do so that was really it. the expectation. Yeah, that's good. So how many different boards are you involved on today and what are they? Um, today I am on the, um, I'm treasurer of the Child and Family Advocacy Center of South Central Minnesota and really proud to be on that. That's something that um, Pat McDermott founded, um, oh, two years ago, three years ago. I'm not good with time frames, um, but really great. It's just a, it's a incredible avenue that helps um, kids and vulnerable adults who have been abused or have been a, either sexually or physically have seen a traumatic event. So it really supports them and their their caregivers, their family, and just a, a great thing that we have in this community that makes a huge difference in lives, especially of those who have been, who are vulnerable and supports not only them, but their family, their caregivers, and makes it a much more private event for them. And I think is done in a way from a legal standpoint where the perpetrators are probably held accountable in a much better way than they were in the old system. Um, so really happy to be on that. That's a, a board. I've never done a board quite like that before. So learning a lot. Um, so great to be on that. Um, just, I was on a bank board, um, community bank board for pioneer for 16 years and retired from that last year. And that was a great experience. Um, well-run organization, just amazing and, and got a lot of experience out of that. Was it your dad that was on a bank board too? He was for Wells Fargo. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Isn't that kind of cool? Yeah. And did that for years. And yeah, so it was, yeah, it, it was funny to listen to him talk and, and see how many things have changed and how their lending practices have changed. And yeah, he's like, you know, back when we did it, if it was a, you know, a good guy and they had assets, they got the loan. <laughs> and it's like, handshake, right? what is all this stuff about cash flow <laughs> and, you know, covenants and yeah. ratios? And he said, we never did that. It was kind of two things. Good guy, cash flow. Yeah, he'll make it work. So interesting. <laughs> Obviously, things change. Um, but it was great doing that. I was on the School of Foundation um, for several years. Really enjoyed that. Um, with for supporting Loyola Catholic School, and that was a great experience, and and loved doing that for a number of years, um, and then part of Young Presidents Organization, which isn't a board but acts kind of like a board. MSU's foundation. MSU Foundation um, have been on that for a couple of years, and really enjoying that, and on a committee up there on their um, building committee. So just learning a lot about that, and a lot about what their plans are for the future. So that's a a great thing to be involved in, and really enjoyed nine years on the GMG board. Yeah. Maybe get some more Vetterstone up at MSU, huh? We'll see. That's not really part That'd of it, but I'd be happy to. Have <laughs> I'd be happy to have that happen too. It really help the look of the campus. I think that'd be great. <laughs> I love it. What stone? What stone would be put up there? I'm assuming Minnesota. I would prefer. Yeah, I yeah, like I mean, the traditional. Yeah. You know, Mankato do you have limestone. A, do you have a favorite stone? Yeah, but it changes all the time. So Does when it? I when I did my house 20 years ago, I was recladding the in, the exterior. Mm -hmm. And I changed the color on it like every week I'd come home and it's like totally different color, <laughs> totally different finish in my head and finally had to settle on something because it's just like, no, I really like this. No, I really sure. like that. Um, so what is your, what is out of the, the whole library of, of uh, stone uh, types that you guys have? Because there is multiple different variations within your quarry here in Minnesota. And then obviously a little bit of variation in Alabama, but not quite as much, correct? Right. Um, do you have a favorite and, and a favorite finish as well? You know, because when I say finish, for people that don't know what that, that means, it could be, um, well, there's honed, and which is smoother, right? And then there's split face, which is a little rougher. Look oh, at you're good go. at this. Well, we do have some beautiful, we do have some beautiful stone up at, at, at Jay Long's, uh, which I love. And you, when you mentioned before, Ron, about how people, 
um, he used the word massage, which is kind of a funny word for, for stone. But honestly, I'm not going to lie. There's not a day that goes by that I don't walk by that big stone wall behind the counter and I don't feel it. I do. I love like touching it. It's so uh, tangible almost. And for stone, it, it feels, even though it's cold, it feels a little cold. It's not as cold as marble. You know, it has a warmth to it. And whether it's the Northern Buff or whether it's the Silver Shadow or all that, it's just, it's really cool. So Anyways, back to you as I'm ranting. No, you're good at this. You ought to, this is great. Looking Need another sales rep? Side yeah, gig. There we side go. gig. You know, got to put these kids through college. There I don't, and I don't think I'm going to go the Angie's kettle corn route. So <laughs> might as well do the stone thing. It's good. Um, uh, so favorite stone run, if, uh, if you can pick and are they mm. kind of like children maybe? Um, they are, but I'd probably, finish? I'd probably do Northern buff. Northern I'd probably buff. do a, a what we call a brush finish, which is just like a really smooth finish, but it'd be like an incredible floor. Have like a light, smooth texture on it, where if you walked across a barefoot, it'd be like really warm and just yeah. really smooth. Be like a great little massage. It's it. like the classic. When I think about mm. better stone, that's what I think of. And do you have this stone in your home currently? I do. Okay, perfect. I do. I've perfect. actually got a little, we pointed out uh, the Jay Long's wine holder behind me which is a great thing that jay long sells if anyone's looking i think you might be able to get them online i don't know but you should i'm not sure if they're on our new website but um you can stop into the store yeah at 1640 madison avenue and pick one up i've also got a Loyola 2012 graduate sign that sits on my bookcase that was uh done at vetterstone it's a really cool piece that shannon sharpless the um the then secretary up at Loyola got me because she was we had a kind of a special bond so it was a really nice gift from her that love I'm seeing that over there that's yeah. a that's a great piece yeah it's very neat so um one thing though you ended on the gmg board as far as your philanthropy and like i said i, I was hoping to chat a little bit about community and some of the things that are going on here locally this is a very very broad question but given your role as past board chair in gmg Knowing that we're going through this Envision 2040 now, mm-hmm. for folks that uh, aren't as familiar, we've gone through different processes as a community in the planning stages, um, trying to figure out what we need and how to best position our community to succeed on a state and national level. Uh, Ron, what do you think is coming down the pipeline and what would you like to see more of uh, for the Mankato community when you think about 2040? So I think what we really need in in sitting on GMG and in that room for nine years, I think there is somewhat of a disconnect with new people moving into the community and really being involved in the community and being encompassed in the community. And I think the community is pretty inviting. I think they would, they would latch onto this group, but I think the introductions are just not there. Um, I also think that we don't do a good enough job with the students at Minnesota State, at Bethany, at Gustavus, incorporating them into the community. You know, I just, we, we often talked about, a, we, we tried to do a kickoff, um, Brenda Flannery, um, Dr. Flannery, who is the dean of the College of Business, we just started a thing where we did a, a kickoff at my home where we brought six students out, a couple of teachers, Brenda and myself, trying to get the, the students to know community members. And we really wanted to do it where every, every business leader at GMG would do it, whether they brought them to their home or maybe they met them at a restaurant. And just try to, to get them out of college town, try to get them off the campus, try to get them out of, you know, just in Riverfront Drive and let them know there's a community. You know, there's obviously a need for employees here. And we heard that a lot. The, the members are like, we need to have access to more, more employees. It's like we have these nice universities right here. We probably have everybody we need here. They train in almost every field. We just have to give them a reason to stay here. 
And I think most kids, when they leave college, they go back to where they came from and they start networking with their parents' friends. So yep. the idea is, why don't we become their their friends? Right. And, you know, if you're at my house and you, you know, you want to be an architect or something, it's like, okay, let's set you up with the next, you know, let's get you to somebody who owns or is a leader at an architectural firm in an engineering firm where you do the next dinner with them rather than here. And maybe that'll, you know, yeah. let's get to know these people. So that's something that I think we could do a lot better job of. And I think we could do that with the new people moving in. And we could do that with the college students. I think we have everything we need right here. We just have to make this home for people. And we haven't made it home. There's too much separation. And I think we need to do a better job with diversity in our community and training the business leaders and just the, the stakeholders in the community, you know, really what that means and what does that look like. So a lot of people complain about livability or, you know, certain types of jobs for those graduates. You believe we have what we need on those fronts. Uh, we just need to break down the silos. We just need right. to get people connected. Right. Get out of college town and, and yeah. realize, you know, when you're talking to somebody and the, the conversation we had at my house with the, the students that were there was absolutely incredible. And they were excited about it. I was excited about it. And then COVID hit and it just all imploded again. And it's something that I'd love to see resurrected again. I know GMG was really interested um, in getting that up and going. I know Dick Davenport at the time was really interested in getting that up and getting it going. Um, it's just a nice community time. It's just very grassroots, very organic. Mm -hmm. But if you have, you know, how many business leaders here that are willing to do it, you're touching a lot of students' lives and getting them maybe introduced to your other friends. It's like, hey, you know, yeah. somebody needs a sales rep. You look like you'd be a really good sales rep and, you know, this company's looking, why don't we, you know, make a call and go and have lunch with the owner? Yeah. I was having a conversation with Kate debates over at Coldwell Banker uh, Fisher group. And she and I both agreed. It seems like Mankato, at least in the businesses that we're connected to has had more recent MSU graduate hires than we've seen in the past decade of us paying attention. So it really seems like the business community is doing a better job of tapping into that that pool of talent and really trying to keep folks here, which I think is great. And I, I like that initiative. I, th I hope GMG and MSU kick that off again, because that'd be great. I'd be happy to host one. Yeah, I think it'd be great. And I think it's awesome for the students. And I would have loved something like that in college. Mm -hmm. And it was just such a vibrant conversation that just ran. I mean, it was from A to Z and was just incredible. And I talked to those students for a long time after that. It was, it was just a great relationship building thing. And, um, yeah, just incredible. I think just a awesome thing. And I think it would be great for the community. And then, and I think that also helps a little bit with the diversity piece mm -hmm. and, you know, sitting down and talking to somebody from a different country and, and realizing, okay, you know, the, we have these barriers and what do we know and what don't we know and just start the conversations. And I think from that standpoint, that organically starts to, to give some of the education that I think we need to have here that we just simply don't, we've been really insulated. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, Brenda's still in charge up at MSU, right? Yes. And, uh, yeah, we should she is. we should tap into that. That'd be oh, great. I think she she loved it, and we just we yeah. had a blast. Her and I cooked for it, and we just it was great. Cool. It was just really fun, really and that, rewarding. And that's still going on. You guys plan to do that annually, or no? We were planning on doing it once a quarter. Okay. Um, but it's literally right when COVID started. Sure. And so we just we shut it down. But I'd love to resurrect it again. I think yeah. it'd be a, I think it'd be great for the community. It's a wonderful idea. I think it's it is very good for this community if we keep. You know, obviously that cyclical cycle of keeping people here, coming here, keeping people here, the talent. I mean, it's just going to make it stronger. And I think that's a beautiful thing. So, And I think it's always easy to think the smartest person is not living here. You know, there's somewhere else. Mm -hmm. You have to bring them in right. from somewhere else. But there's such a risk with that. Do they like the community? Does their right. trailing spouse or partner or kids, do they like the community? Right. And I think often what we heard 
is, you know, whoever was the person getting the job, they did fine. It was their trailing spouse or partner that it's like they weren't connected. And so there's got to be a better way to connect them into the community as well. Right. I love great it. talent. Um, you know, Ben Kaus, Nick Kaus are, are two top leaders. Both came from the MSU business program. Both incredibly well set up to come in really from day one. Their, their education was so incredible coming out of that College of Business program. Absolutely just astounding kind of what they came in with and, and the talent that they had right out of the shoot. Have you ever seen them duke it out in the Corey or any other place? Hasn't gotten to that, but they are definitely competitive boys. They are competitive boys. They're absolutely no competitive. Yeah. Hundred about <laughs> about everything. Yeah. How much they can eat, how much they can lift, how smart they are. Absolutely competitive you'd rather, about You'd rather everything. have that though, wouldn't you? Oh, hundred percent. As leaders, competitive I, leaders. Oh, yeah. Why not? You gotta have some, you know, you gotta have the will to win. Absolutely. Too, as well as being humble at times and knowing when to be, but and they manage it pretty well internally. <laughs> I love it. What do you think, Wesley? Well, I think we've had a great conversation thus far, Aaron. Do you uh, do you want to maybe kick us off into your favorite ritual? Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, we're going to need to dim the lights, light another candle, say a couple seances. Um, I don't even know if Ron knows what's coming. I have no oh, idea. Which, so I, do I have to open another bottle or something? Yeah, which ritual <laughs> were we free. talking? Go, get after it. <laughs> oh, the, that ritual. Gosh, I got confused. It happens sometimes. Well, Ron, I don't know if you have um, heard about this particular ritual, as Wes calls it, but uh, at the end of each podcast, we have something called the final five or the fast five. Mm. I, I think I'm going to start calling it just the final five because it's not really fast because m- myself, Wes, and most guests have words to we say. It's, it. it's Yeah, we'll <laughs> derail it or go on some tangent. It's just the way it goes. So um, five questions. Answer them as fast as you can. I don't want you to overthink it. I don't think you will. You ready? I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Do you need to pour a little more or are you good? Oh, no, I'm going to pour more. This sounds okay. like there's some odor. <laughs> get after it. Don't get too nervous. We got the rye over there. Otherwise, let's see. Let's see. Okay, I got to get prepped for this. Okay. You do that. I wasn't nervous till now. Well, don't get too nervous. <laughs> While we're waiting for you to do that, though, I also want people to know that if they're looking for a sweet dog house made out of stone, uh, that they can also reach out to Vetterstone and get something made. Um, probably Ron is the person to reach out to about that since he has one in his office uh, for his his dog. Well, I was going to say puppy, but how old is... Ollie is a year and a half already and loves his little Snoopy dog house. It's a sweet... He, Ron sent me pictures of it. It's a Snoopy stone dog it's beautiful and you guys did that all there it's crazy the details that you guys are able to do from a lion head to a dog house that has snoopy on top of it i mean honestly it's not just slabs that you slap on a a skyscraper or target field you guys can do so many great things um we do a lot of carvings so there will be homes where they'll do like a a fruit bowl or maybe like a swag over a window and um, lion heads that spit out water and very common that we're doing carving a lot of lettering um, Corinthian capitals, um, any kind of capital. So lots of really intricate, detailed work where we'll have, you know, crews sitting there with like a little Dremel machine just doing the really minute, tiny little details. It's amazing. It's amazing. Does Ali love that doghouse? He loves his doghouse. Okay, good, because I'm sure there was a lot of work put into that. <laughs> there uh, was, and I was really afraid he would never go in it, but he, he goes in it every morning. And first thing, he runs in, runs there and sits there like he poses for a second, and then he gets out and says hi to everybody. So he kind of knows he, he really needs to do that for Is me. Is it Alabama that that was made no, out of? that's our really light gray Minnesota. Light gray Minnesota. Okay. And if you want to see it, come to my office. Perfect. Everybody's welcome. I love it. 
That's so cool. All right. Well, let's get into the final five here, guys. Question number one, Ron. Things that people are still surprised to learn of Vetterstone. Maybe one thing that people would be surprised to know about Vetterstone that they may not know. That we are really happy to do like the smallest of smallest jobs. What's the smallest job that you've ever done that you know of? Like a coaster, like a, like a, you know, maybe a tiny little piece to put under a clock or something, you know, something to hold a a little piece of stone to put a vase on. How would someone get a hold of you for our listeners that maybe want to, how would they get a hold of you to do that? Do they just call the line on the website? Either call in or stop in at the office and either way. Cool. We'll get them set up with somebody that'll take care of them. I love it. Well, you live on the lake, obviously. Would you consider yourself a lake guy? Definitely a lake guy. Perfect. So I live in the lake most of the time. I live in downtown Minneapolis part of the time. Okay. Love the combination of being right down in the heart of Minneapolis, kind of at ground zero. Yep. So love that two or three days a week, and then love being at the quiet lake three or four days a week. I dig it. If you were a fish... Any fish, big, small, it doesn't matter. What kind of fish would you be and why, Ron? What would I be? Hmm. What fish is Ron Vetter? Probably at this time in my life, I'd have to be an octopus. An octopus? Mm-hmm. Is that because you wish you had eight legs or some other reason? No, you just have a lot of moving parts. You know, my three boys, um, two girls that I adopted, one who's getting married at my house two and a half weeks from now. Um, you know, so kind of getting everything ready for that and just blending the girls into our family. Um, I didn't raise them, just got them as adults. My sister's kids when her and her, um, when their dad passed away. Right. So kind of a nice blending there. So it just feels like you've got different tentacles out and, and, you know, tentacles in the business tentacles in just with your friend group and in different boards and community involvement. It's a good answer. Yeah, it is. I like that. I didn't expect it. I don't know if I'd want to look like an octopus. (laughs) I always think that people should be morphed, that will be, will eventually like have three arms, you know, because, and just think when you're carrying your kids out, it's like, don't you always need one more arm? Oh, jeez. So how have we not morphed over time? And I think eventually we're going to grow another arm just because we have to, because you have to move so much stuff, especially when you have kids. Two for the phone and a third one for whatever else. (laughs) We might need four now. Yeah. I love it. I've ran this by uh, both the Cowboys, uh, Ron, um, multiple times. And if they do listen to this, they'll probably roll their eyes because I have said this to them multiple times. But I think that some sort of, in your marketing guy, you got marketing in your history, right? <laughs> I know where this is going. <laughs> You've got marketing in your history. And I also consider myself a creative soul in mind and, and like marketing. Um, what about get stoned, better stone? Just give me your honest reaction. No. Pro cons. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That'll be a hard, fast no. Okay. Creative. I'll give you that. It's very creative, but no. Okay. What about when it becomes legal in Minnesota, which it will happen eventually that it becomes fully legal in Minnesota. Would you change your tune on that or just let's say legal across the states? I still think I'd maybe work on a little different angle. Okay. Very creative. Very good. But probably even then a hard no. Okay. Gotcha. Is there any angles that you can see right off the bat as we're asking this that would be play off that? Because somebody else is going to use it, you know, at some point. And it, and it sounds like you're okay with them using that. They can have it all day long. <laughs> <laughs> It'll right. be really fun to see how successful there they are go. with it. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, a project coming up, an upcoming project that you can give us a sneak peek into. Mm. That is one that you guys... Let me rephrase that, all right? Maybe you've got one in the works or maybe it's just a desirable project. Is there a building 
in the world slash United States that you're like, I want that fucking project. Oh, and it's going to be mine. And I know you're a competitive guy as well. So what project would you love to just get and put your name on it? And it would help you just coast into the future and know that, Hey, that, that my stone's also on that building. That's going to be around for a long time. There is one that will be unnamed, um, that I'm really excited about that I think will happen. Um, but hasn't happened yet. Um, but I believe will happen and will be a nice game changer. Anything you can give us on that? I'm assuming it's a commercial building. Commercial. Is it East Coast or West Coast? It is East. Okay. Is it <laughs> is it government? No. Oh. I no, feel like he government. might have, he I'm might play, be lying playing, on that one because we're getting close. We're no, playing twenty questions here. We're going to narrow okay. it down. Okay. <laughs> but we did a project a couple of years ago with our Alabama stone, and we didn't do the fabrication. But we sold blocks for it, and then those blocks were shipped to Canada and then fabricated there, put together in a warehouse on a s- assembly system, but went on a 70-story building on Central Park, and that really changed the tune of Alabama Stone. And it was with Robert A.M. Stern, who's one of the probably the top five leading architects in the country, if not the world. And so really a game changer. When you can do something like that, it puts you in the running for a lot of things that are really significant because people know it's like, all right, at this point, you can do anything. Right. And they know what the material looks like, and they know it's spectacular and very Makes cool. it really desirable. Yeah. That's neat. Helping make that Alabama Stone acquisition pay for itself right there alone. Right? Yes, finally. Been <laughs> a long gonna road. It's going to be a good feeling. I'm going to add one more question in there, even though this is a sixth. But um, if you could sit down, what's your favorite holiday, Ron? Can I guess? Thanksgiving. <laughs> I like Thanksgiving, but I like Christmas better. Okay, dang it. All I right. Know. Good well, try. Well, that's okay. I'll still go with Thanksgiving uh, f- with my question. If you could sit down and have Thanksgiving dinner or just Christmas dinner, whatever, a nice dinner with anybody dead or alive, who would that person be and why? It probably wouldn't be anybody famous. Um, my number one would probably be our family business consultant, Leslie, because she just it absolutely brilliant. Just incredible person. Lots of heart. Just amazing life experience. Um I would probably have her okay. over anybody else. And so your advice... Or anybody else like famous or that people would know. So your advice to other people who potentially have family-run businesses or anything, no matter what the genre of the business is, um, your advice to them is hire a consultant that uh, understands you, is willing to listen to the dynamics of your business. Um, what other advice on that on that vein would you say... Yeah, and really helps you run the business like a business. And but is there when you have like really difficult familial things to work through? Sure. You know, when you get the emotions built in there, it's really tough. And you almost need somebody that's just kind of, you know, you're not making those go away, but you're really dealing with those in a in a much more effective way. Because right. there will always be challenges and you know, some of those get really big and you see a lot of family businesses implode. And it's really just risk mitigation to get to the point where the communication isn't so bad. Um, where it just really gets difficult and, and where, you know, a lot of those fights end up forcing the sale of the company. Right. And so that's really in, you know, what you're trying to protect against to some standpoint is not to ever get to that point. Oh, I love it. Very good. Anything else you want our listeners to know about Vetterstone in the future? No, just plan on being here for a long time in the future. And I just, you know, I'd love this to stay a family run local organization um, well into perpetuity hopefully with next generations whether they work there or not Um, but just think it's really important to have something owned by people in the community and you know you see a lot of things getting sold off and i think it's just difficult over time 
And my friends that have, have been in positions where they've sold things off, I've seen where they've been maybe really pleased with it for a while. And then they're kind of not. And I think many of them often wonder, it's like, why did I do that? Why, why did I give that up? And what do I do now? What's my purpose now? Mm-hmm. Um, really have no interest in doing that. We, uh, we've made a habit of asking all of our guests too. Um, you've been through the whole get deep experience at this point. Uh, who do you think would be a great guest for us to have on? Who would you recommend? And uh, can you maybe help us get them on if it's not someone that's already within our circle? Uh, Charlie, when we asked him that question, he had suggested you. So that's why we reached out. Of course, you already are on our list, to be honest, but it was it was a great recommendation. So if you have anyone that comes to mind, we'd be more than happy to consider. I will. And, and Charlie would have been my number one go-to because I think he's an absolute brilliant leader, a leader with heart, and, you know, is running an incredible organization and doing that for a family, which is really difficult. There's, you know, there's always oddities in a family business. It's just very, it's a tough role to step into, different than being in a, you know, a publicly traded corporation. And there's, there's trade-offs, there's good things about it, but there's difficult things about it. And, right. and I think he just handles that really well. And I think he's great in the community running Greater Mankato Growth as chairman and um, stepping in at a really difficult time when Jonathan was just getting out and um, had some really heavy lifting with that and I think did an extraordinary job. And, um, I agree. But I think there's some some incredible leaders in this community that I think just are, are a little quieter. Um, come up with somebody for you. Sure. Okay. And it, and it doesn't necessarily have to be just Mankato too. It could be in the cities with the relationships you've created up there too. So uh, it could be anybody in the state. Uh, or the Midwest too. Our goal is to grow, um, you know, start locally, but also grow the Get Deep podcast to uh, encompass a, a wider swath of areas. So, uh, thank you, Ron. It was a pleasure to have you on the Get Deep podcast. I appreciate your time and uh, your knowledge and your wisdom and uh, your stories. Really, it's it's really incredible. And um, knowing you and having a relationship we've built over the years, just being able to sell you threads and getting to know your family and your boys and everything has been a pleasure. Um, I also really enjoy going past buildings, whether again, it's target field or places locally or other places in the cities, uh, that your stone is on, because I think what a testament, um, to our local story. So thank you for adding to that story. Well, thank you. And thank you for your work at the store and here in West. Thank you for your, your work in the community and what you do on greater Mankato growth board and here as well. And, and Scola foundation and things that you've done just within the community. You guys have, have done an awful lot. Um, Somebody may want to talk to is Colleen Van Blarkham, who I think has also moved our world here significantly and has employed thousands and thousands of people over the years. And a lot of them young, some of them not so young. And um, I think has been a great force in our community as well and would have some great wisdom to share. Excellent recommendation. I always resonate with the the food providers, especially. So that would be a fun one. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Ron. We appreciate your time. And let us know if there's ever anything we can do for you in the future, too. You guys are awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening, you guys.